everyone. Welcome back to the second part of this episode series with Joe. In uh, part one, the last episode, Joe shared his experience growing up in the cult called Children of God. And in this second part, we're going to talk about what life was like after leaving the cult. So let's jump right in. Um, so Joe, uh, you mentioned in part one that you and your family left the cult when you were around 12 years old. Can you tell us what that was like? Sure. Um, to summarize it, it was an awkward experience. Um, I remember having a lot of difficulty with assimilation, just trying to find my place and fit in and not act like a complete weirdo. <laughs> uh, I was really self-aware. So I was like, I knew that I was going to have some issues up front before I ever got out in the world. Um, what I wasn't ready for was the, the culture shock that I had. I mean, like, I didn't really know what I, what to expect. I think mm -hmm. I, I realized like super quick that the world wasn't anything like what I had expected it to be or what I read in books. Mm -hmm. And I just, I realized I was going to have to relearn everything I thought I knew. And I was going to have to form my own opinions. I was going to have to just take everything I thought I knew, throw it out the window and start from scratch. Mm -hmm. So, but <laughs> it was, it was just a lot of trial and error. It was, it was really difficult. It was really awkward. And I remember getting frustrated a lot because just nothing really made sense about how other people thought or why they did what they did. I mean, in the world that I came from, it was predictable, at least, you know, because I had learned the types of rules and what I could and couldn't do. And mm -hmm. it didn't really leave much to be interpreted because, you know, I had grown up in it. It wasn't confusing to me. But when you get out there and you realize that the entire world lives by a different set of rules and social norms, then it's, uh, mm. it took me a while to figure that out. Everything was brand new to me. Yeah. So it's like, felt like an alien, kind of. Uh -huh. just I just kind of dived right in and stumbled around, embarrassed myself a lot until I figured it out. Yeah. And, and you're talking about like, it being awkward and the culture shock and it being difficult. Like what were some of the things? Can you share some examples? Like sarcasm. <laughs> My sarcasm <laughs> radar is so broken and it still kind of is a little bit. It's like, I mean, as much as I hate to admit it to this day, it's uh, because I didn't grow up around it. You know, you get your ass kicked for being sarcastic. And so it wasn't something I was really familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I remember, you know, just being kind of surprised by how sarcastic everybody else outside the cult was. And it, I took everything at face value and super literally because I just I couldn't tell when people <laughs> were being sarcastic and when they were being dead serious. And then people would get like, why did like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it took me a long time to navigate that. And like, I eventually did. But yeah, I remember that in particular was really confusing to me, <laughs> like very, especially like when adults would be sarcastic they would, uh, like, I just, I didn't understand it. Mm. So yeah, there was that. And then another hurdle, I guess, was really just relating to people in general or mm -hmm. other kids my own age. Mm -hmm. That was a really huge hurdle because I didn't have any common ground or right. I didn't have any shared interests with anyone at my age because I was just, I was weird, you know? We don't think the same. I like things that they don't like you know I, I enjoy books I remember telling 
some kids like oh what are your favorite books and he just kind of laughed at me like i was a fucking nerd <laughs> that's cute i was like oh okay i guess that's not okay <laughs> and i realized quick that it's like okay the only people who kind of get me are way way older than me mm. and so like you know getting people when you're you know 13 14 years old getting someone who's like 19 20 years old to take you seriously and hold a conversation with you and not treat you like a kid that's kind of impossible Mm. what else were some awkward culture shock moments the fact that every family had their own set of internal rules Mm. and that because I thought like just because of where I'd come from it's pretty much the same at every compound you would go to Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what sort of new people you run into they're going to have basically the same set of rules you know maybe a little more extreme or less extreme but generally speaking you, you know what to expect when you're going into a new compound. And what shocked me a lot, I remember, was that you can meet one set of friends and they're from like a church group setting. So they have their own little set of rules and what's okay to say and do in that circle. And then you go to another group of friends and it's totally different. Mm. Everything from how you interact with each other to how you talk to each other. So yeah, I think the, the biggest things, the biggest hurdles was dealing with the culture shock and my own insecurity. Mm-hmm. about because I knew where I had come from and I knew that it was weird and I knew that I had a strange ass story and that nobody would understand mm-hmm. so I just kind of felt like I was living a lie even a little bit even mm-hmm. back then because it's like I got this secret that I can't tell anybody that this place that I came from and I just I remember feeling a little frustrated about that because I could there was a couple kids that I told about it and they just looked at me like I was fucking weird Mm. and I remember like (laughs) I remember thinking to myself like okay lesson learned let's never talk about that again and let's cut these kids off because that was embarrassing I don't want to see them again so (laughs) I kind of just ghosted that group and started over I see so you learned uh, really early like do not bring up your cult life yeah yeah that was one I learned pretty early on so just navigating social situations was hands down the most complicated, frustrating thing I had ever done in my life. Yeah. Having just building social skills because like I didn't really have any. My social skills like today still suck, by the way. <laughs> it's like I'm a work in progress. <laughs> no, you're pretty good. <laughs> but maybe you're definitely different from depends. other people, but it's not terrible. <laughs> it, it depends on what we're discussing and what the topic is. If it's like some sort of deep topic or something, yeah, I'm super engaged. I'm all in. That's easy for me. But like small talk, you ask me to, you know, go and socialize with people and just conduct small talk. I can't do it to save my life. I'm just, it's, it's an important deep topic or nothing for me. And that's, (laughs) that's a little frustrating too, because I know not every, you know, not every situation calls for an existential conversation, but that's kind of. It's kind of what I'm comfortable with. So are you able to like pick up nuances or read between the lines? It depends on the situation and the people. Most, a lot of the time, yeah. Like I'm the guy in the back of the room who just quiet and watches everybody, but I can tell you what's going on in every conversation and how people will react to certain things. And Mm. I'm constantly, uh, constantly just kind of sizing people up mentally. And that makes sense because you did that like every day in the cult, right? Yeah, like survival mode, you know, you can, you don't just turn that off. You just, mm-hmm. 
I'm constantly on guard. I'm constantly taking what people say and trying to read between the lines like, oh, what did they mean to say by that? Or mm. what are they insinuating? And sometimes it's right. like, and I, I do that in autopilot. So sometimes people will say something and it's just so obvious what they actually meant that it's like, I hear it that way. And then when I recall a conversation, I might not remember the exact words, but I remember the sentiment, the sentiments mm -hmm. around the conversation. So it's like, I can recall, like, if you ask me, do you remember that conversation we had a year about such and such? I might not remember the exact words or what we discussed, but I'll remember how you felt about it and how mm -hmm. I felt about it. I see. So you were this awkward 12 year old that had just left the cult. What were you feeling at the time? I remember being excited. I was nervous. I had a lot of anxiety, but mm -hmm. maybe a little bit scared, but I was more excited than anything else. Cause I knew that I just gained more freedom than I've ever had in my life. And I just mm -hmm. like couldn't wait to get out there and see what I could get away with. Was it everything you thought it would be? Back then? Yeah. 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 And it didn't all happen all at once. So it's right. like my mom didn't just flip a switch and one day we have all this freedom. You know, it's like she took a while to detach herself from cult lifestyle and rules and such. Like leaving didn't happen overnight for her. Right. She, we moved into a house and we got out of the environment overnight. But her the culture at home stayed for a mm -hmm. while you know mm -hmm. it took her a while to really get away from that and then it slowly fizzled out she still wanted when we moved in still wanted to pray every day and have like cult prayer ceremonies or whatever but that fizzled out super quick like within the first few months but she didn't let go of all of her habits so you know and you can't blame her because that's how she lived most of her life so yeah you can't expect somebody to change overnight but slowly but surely like we i'd say within the first like two years of living in that house we had a semblance of a normal life and do you know why your mom decided to leave i don't um if i had to guess it's probably something to do with um i'm number eight out of ten and there's seven other siblings that are older than me and she experienced like they they all got distant at some point. We've all had our clashes with our mother at some point. And I think just maybe after seven of them, she realized like, hmm, maybe what I'm doing isn't the best decision. You know, I mean, all my kids are telling me the same thing. They're all, I mean, we turn out to be, I like to think we turn out to be decent adults, but we all got our problems. We all have some pretty deep seated issues. And she's, I think she noticed that maybe my other siblings had a talk with her about it. Mm -hmm. maybe maybe it finally hit home after sibling number seven <laughs> yeah but you never asked her directly why she left no me and my mom were not we aren't very close we aren't very open like that mm -hmm. we haven't had any real conversations like that that goes for my father too I don't mm -hmm. I've never had a real conversation with either of them about anything mm. <laughs> that's the one area in my life where it's been all small talk <laughs> Just dancing around the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you left, um, did you go to public school or um, what was your education like? Okay. So we didn't go to public school. My parents have always been extremely outspoken against public school and the system. That's what they called it. Mm. So um, even though my mom was on her way out, 
distancing herself from the cult, she insisted on keeping us homeschooled. And I had my own opinions about that when I was younger. I wanted to go to public school because I wanted to just kind of get thrown in the deep end and I knew it would be awkward, but I wanted to figure it out. I didn't want to wait till I was a teenager to figure it out. And I wanted to go to school, but um, they insisted on keeping me on home studies, which turned out to be even worse for me. The school program they had me enrolled in, they would send you like four years of study material once it would show up in a boxes like piles and piles of books and that's like yeah that's like your study material for all of high school it would all show up at once so I had this massive stack of books and tests and this was like right when the internet was coming out so you could take tests online Mm -hmm. and so like my uh my daily schedule was pretty much wake up do your school you just kind of pace yourself I I remember um I kind of estimated like how much work it was and what I could handle in a day mm-hmm. and just kind of just kind of put myself on the on the schedule so I could complete it. Ended up finishing two years early. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're a smart little kid. Yeah, because I, I like books. I read a lot. <laughs> and not only that, I enjoy it. So it's like running, going through test books and stuff. I remember struggling with like math, but everything else came like really easy. And it was all open book tests too. So it's like, I could just, you're telling me that you're going to give me a test and I have the study material right in front of me. Like, I don't, <laughs> so now I don't even have to memorize anything. I just have to read really fast and remember what, how to look stuff up. So mm-hmm. that was like insanely easy. And by the time I was uh, 15, I had enough credits to graduate. I didn't end up graduating high school till I was 17, but that's later in my story to wrap back around. I had a lot of time on my hands because I'd wake up around eight, mm-hmm. do the school that I had for the day. And I'm done by like 12 o'clock, one o'clock. And that leaves mm-hmm. the rest of the day to do whatever the hell I wanted. Mm-hmm. So when we first got out, my parents were like still pretty strict. They wouldn't let us leave the house alone. And eventually that kind of, they started trusting me and my little brother at the places we like to hang out, the skate park and such. And so they eventually started leaving us alone there. And it was like, okay, if you finish all your school for the day, all your tours are done, you know, then you guys can go fuck off and do whatever you want until it's dark outside. Mm-hmm. And so we did. So me and my little brother ended up hanging out this local skate park, which was like a melting pot mm-hmm. of all the local kids. You know, you've got every type of uh, demographic in there from like goody goody two shoes, church kids and prayer groups to drug dealers and homeless people it's like just everything there and in between mm-hmm. so they would uh they'd come and drop me and my little brother off we'd skate well we started rollerblading at first mm-hmm. for like the first like two three years that's all we did was rollerblade and what was that like like learning to do that because that you didn't you couldn't do that in the cult right yeah we couldn't do that in the cult I remember I can't remember how we found that place I think we were just like at a grocery store or something one day and we mom our mom saw it and she decided to drive through the park and me and my little brother saw it. We're like, Oh, we want to do that. So mm-hmm. we got some super cheap rollerblades and put those things on. We got our pads and we, mm-hmm. and it was uh, the skate park is like all fenced in. So my mom probably felt safe leaving us there. She says, okay, just don't leave the skate park, you know? And that way it's like, she knows where we're at. It's not too yeah. far from the house. It's like a mile and a half away from our house. Mm-hmm. So I guess she just felt comfortable leaving us there after a little mm-hmm. while. And I took that, 
tiny bit of freedom and just ran with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we uh, we learned how to rollerblade. We got pretty damn good, actually. Me and my little brother used to compete. We they'd have little uh, mm. they'd have like little competitions there a couple a year. Me and my little brother would win first like every single time for wow. our age categories because we were you know he's a little bit younger than me. Impressive. And then uh, like he stuck with it and he actually got really good. And I just I got bored because rollerblading back then wasn't a very popular sport mm-hmm. and still not <laughs> it was like you know kind of all the nerds rollerblade and all the cool kids skateboard so I realized immediately I was like oh if I want to have any friends then I gotta start skateboarding so <laughs> I picked up a skateboard and that's how I got involved with like my set of friends and my little brother kept up with rollerblading and he had his little group of his little group of friends and they were just totally different but that was like kind of where me and him started splitting off and going different routes in life when I think about it. So you went with the skater group. What kind of friends did you make? Um, right away, it, was, it wasn't like all bad kids, you know. It's just kids who enjoy a different sport. Mm-hmm. But I started gravitating more towards like, well, also because of the schedule. So because I'm, you know, out of the house and got nothing to do by one o'clock, I'm leaving the house immediately we go to the skate park and we're just skating around and the kids that hang out there around that time, you know, normal kids are still in school. Right. These kids are all like the continuation school kids, the mm. kids who get expelled and like other regular schools won't accept them. So they got nothing else to do, but go to the skate park and do drugs and skate around and just be fuck, you know, fucking mm-hmm. delinquents. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the type of people I ended up hanging out with. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of how that started. And that just kind of went, led into all sorts of other crazy shit over the next few years, but it started off innocent enough. It was just, mm-hmm. just making friends and skateboarding. And then all that just led into a bunch of other things. Mm, like what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So from the time I was like 13 to 15, it went from just innocent skateboarding around and hanging out with friends to breaking into houses and selling drugs and doing all the drugs we can get our hands on and just experimenting with all sorts of things and just getting into a lot of fucked up situations because that city that we lived in it's like Palmdale Lancaster area it's not like the best neighborhood you know it's on the outskirts it's LA County but it's like low-income housing area Mm. where so it's like people trying to get out of the ghetto move here but they bring Mm. the ghetto with them it's like uh, it's that type of neighborhood you know so naturally being that young and just kind of being dropped in the middle of all of it I started making friends and started getting into trouble getting in a lot of fights and just I just I didn't know any better because I didn't have any other role models anybody Mm. else to look up to Nobody to tell me, like, I think I was smart enough to know all the shit I was doing was bad, but I just, I didn't care. I was mm. sick of being, being a goody-goody two-shoes cult kid, you know? Mm. I thought it was normal for the area I was in, but I also was sharp enough to realize, like, look, not everybody's like this. My little brother's set of friends, for instance, very innocent. They're all, like, super nerdy and just, like, you know, do exactly as they say. They're just, they're good kids, you know? They're good, just very normal kids and then I looked at my own group of friends and it's like okay well we're out here doing some bad shit 
and mm-hmm. that's uh like I knew better but I think I just I didn't care yeah I think I was just rebellious because I just was sick of following all the rules and at that age you just like you just don't really care why do you think you gravitated towards those groups of people I think I just identified more with them I related more to them mm. Not only that, I think I just I might have admired them almost because when you come from a place where everything is prescribed for you, you have to do exactly as you're told. You have to be a certain way and talk a certain way and behave a certain way. Mm-hmm. You you start to resent that, and then you mm-hmm. come out here and here's these badass fucking kids doing whatever the hell they want, mm-hmm. being disrespectful as hell, just mm-hmm. out here causing mayhem. And <laughs> I think I. I think I liked that. I think I just, <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, that's, that's what I've always wanted to do. So I did. Did you start building a sense of self once you left? That is interesting question. Did I have a sense of self? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, because I remember feeling like I didn't have like a personality. Mm. I remember feeling like because all my behaviors were mimicked like when you're that young you copy the people that you look up to and the people around you and the behaviors I didn't realize that that is just normal for kids to do you know Mm -hmm. and what what, being that self-aware I was aware that I was mimicking people around me and that it wasn't really me so Mm -hmm. like I'd see I'd see other older kids like acting out or saying dumb shit or acting a certain way that, and then I would go and do it. And I'm like consciously aware, like this is not something that I would have done had I not seen that, but here I am doing it anyways, adopting somebody else's personality as if it were my own. And so having that in the back of my head, it's like, okay, I'm not, I know I'm not being who I really am, Mm. but who I really am is just, uh, it's just the sum of all these other mimicked traits that I have. So it's like, I, I wasn't sure if I had a personality that I could call my own. I felt mm-hmm. like I was bland. I felt like I was boring as hell. And I felt like I needed mm-hmm. to keep that secret too, because if other people know I don't have personality, then <laughs> that makes me boring. So that's what went on in my head about having a sense of self. Um, mm. Like, I don't think I developed a personality till or at least I didn't learn how to be myself for a long time, probably until after high school. Yeah. Cause like all through, even like, yeah, all through my teenage years, I just, I'd see how other people behave and act stuff they say. And I'd be like, Oh, I like that. And I'd adopt it as my own. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, do you feel like you know who you are today? Mm. Do I feel like I know who I am today? Yeah my true self that's a deep question <laughs> i'll tell you why it's deep. i know it doesn't sound deep but i'll t- i'll explain why so it's not a yes or a no question it's a both mm-hmm. it's somewhere in between mm-hmm. it's so the way i see it is like like i'm constantly evolving and now that i'm in my 30s i'm aware enough to know that who I am today most likely won't be who I am in five years mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. one year or in the future. Like humans live in perpetual states of motion when it comes to character development. So from that perspective, it's 
impossible to ever truly know who you are because who you are is always changing every day. And all you can ever know for certain is who you have been in the past. So to me, who you are, quotation marks, is simply what others perceive you to be. It's other people's idea of who you are based on what they've seen. The person we perceive ourselves to be, that only exists in your, in your own head. And therefore, that's not who we are because it's just a perception of yourself. You know, that doesn't exist anywhere else. The person you think you are doesn't exist outside of your own head because other people look at you and they see something totally different. So who we are, quotation marks, who we are mm-hmm. lives somewhere in between what others perceive you to be and your own perception of yourself. So like long story short, I mean, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's not a yes or no question. Well, what if who you are in your head and how people perceive you as are the same? Mm, I don't think that's possible because you live in your head and you live with your thoughts. Others only know what you show them. Mm. So I don't think it's possible for them to know who you are or who you think you are. So you've lived your life sort of having this awareness of how you are around other people is different from who who you are in your own head. I think that we like to think we know how other people view us, but mm-hmm. other people aren't going to share every single perception with you. Mm-hmm. Other people know what they let you know. So yeah. it's not, I don't know, I'm not I mean, it's an interesting concept that you're bringing up. I don't think it's possible to know, to reconcile who you think you are in your head versus what everybody else thinks you are, because every single human that you've ever met has a different opinion of who Mickey is, of who who Joe is. And that includes you and me both. I have a different idea of who I am versus what you think I am. I feel that how people see me is not how I would define myself, right? So yeah, exactly. Everyone has a sense of self. That's so when I ask you about sense of self, that's what I'm talking about in terms of like, how do you see yourself in your head? So who is that person? Who do I think I am? Yeah. I don't know. It depends on what day it is <laughs> and what situation I'm in. Some days I love myself. Some days I hate myself. It depends. That's why I say I, I can't say if I know who yeah. I am because I don't. I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure it out. Yeah. Sometimes I do things. And I'm like, damn, why did I do that? And then six months later, I'll look back and be once things have played out around a situation, I'll be like, oh. That's why I did that. It's almost like I knew better at the time. I just Mm. subconsciously, I knew better about something and it didn't make sense until way, way later when Mm -hmm. everything played out. That happens all the time with me. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help me define who I am. Mm. It just, it makes me feel better about the subconscious choices I make because if I do something in a moment 
and it doesn't make any sense to me in that moment of like damn why did I do that I was so stupid like I don't see any reason why I would have said that and then next week it comes in handy I'm like oh okay that was actually a really good thing to say right then like mm-hmm. at that point it's it doesn't help me know myself better but it helps me be more okay with who I am even though I not really sure who I am is whoever's calling the shots subconsciously makes me feel better about that (laughs) yeah so if someone were to ask you like okay Joe if you can describe yourself in three words what would it be Hmm. if I had to sum myself up in three words Mm -hmm. maybe thinker dreamer overthinker (laughs) (laughs) so thinker dreamer overthinker (laughs) yeah so you live in your head a lot is what you're saying yes that is my comfort zone if you live in your head do you live in your heart ever I follow my head more than my heart my heart suggests my heart has really dumb ideas all the time sometimes I've listened (laughs) to it and it's never really led anywhere good so I think I've learned to to rely on logic more than heartfelt feelings like every time I've ever let my heart lead the way it's, I can't remember a single time where it ended up really good. Okay. So you're more of, you're less emotional. You're more analytical. Yes, very much so. I prefer cold, hard logic to emotions. Emotions are sticky and annoying. I don't really understand them. Yeah. And they're difficult to process if you have so much to process, you know, maybe someday you'll get there. Yeah. Um, Okay. So now that you left the cult, what were some things you believed in growing up that you realized were all lies once you left? Mm, I think I started waking up while I was in the group still. It wasn't that like, you know, as a kid, you'll believe anything. Your parents or the people around you tell you is real. Like obvious ones are like God, religion, and like Armageddon, the end time. Every Christian group out there has some version of the end time. You're living in the time of the end. And, you know, God's coming back any day to judge all the sinners and all that, good, you know, all that mm-hmm. biblical shit. As a kid, I think I, I bought into it right away. And then... Once I started reading and, you know, getting other opinions, I just, I think it just started making less and less sense. And once I got more exposure to like how people are on the outside and how they perceived people like that in church groups and cults, it was just so, so freaking obvious. It didn't take until my mom got out of it and moved us into a house for me to realize like, okay, um, God's probably not real. Religion is more or less something that's used to control people. Mm. And the end time, I mean, you know, in the cult, they tell, they told us all the time, it's the end time. And, you know, God's going to come back any day. So nothing we really do matters. All we can do is prepare for that. So that's what we're all doing. And I realized, like, after reading a few books, it's like, okay, well, that's not a new thing. You know, (laughs) there's like lots of religions over time have thought that. So like, what makes this one different? Like, I just, I started to question a lot of things that we were taught early on and I never, 
voice my opinion about it or anything but in my head I just kind of be rolling my eyes every time they bring it up you know mm-hmm. another thing that I guess I learned when I got out that I believed while I was in the cult is that like I guess right up until I actually got out in the world and started making friends that weren't in the group I still thought that the world was like a bad place you know because that's what they teach you when you're in there the world's bad and there's full of bad people and judging by the people that were around me in the cult I was like okay well if they're the ones saying it's bad then they must be really bad people out there you know mm-hmm. and you get out there and people aren't that bad you know <laughs> there's good people out there and I think that was also a shock to me it's like wow I thought everybody was just going to be a downright sinner doing doing absolutely fucked up shit all of them and here's people with kids who are showing genuine love for their kids and mm-hmm. who go to church, even though we were all told that like church people are lost and they're sheep and they just follow, they need that to like they, we, they had the cult had so many different opinions around people who go to the church when it's really just, it's nothing more than church. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they reconciled that with the fact that they were pretty much an over the top extremist version of a regular church Mm -hmm. it's like (laughs) the hypocritical factor there was so strong like holy shit and what's your religious beliefs today i don't have any uh like i want to say atheist because Mm -hmm. that's probably best defines my outlook but at the same time it's easy to just dismiss it and say there is no god right there is no nothing all of this is pointless it's easy to be nihilistic super easy to buy into that but when you look at things like from a scientific perspective like just there's design everywhere you look at plants and photosynthesis and the structure of leaves or Mm -hmm. how our entire ecosystem (laughs) ties in with everything around us and the moon influences waves and it just all works together perfectly to come together and build this environment where life and consciousness is just possible you know like the odds of all that shit coming together is just there's like i see like as an engineer i see design everywhere you know i appreciate good design because that's you know that's what i do Mm -hmm. and just looking at nature it's really fucking hard to buy that all this shit just fell into fucking place you know like so i don't think it was god that like came down and decided to fuck build it or I mean, or maybe it was, maybe it was fucking Santa Claus. Who knows? It's just, all I can say is that I don't know. (laughs) And I think anybody who claims to know is just completely narcissistic. That Mm. goes for Christians who like, oh, God created the world in seven days and the world is six or 7,000 years old. And all about like people like that who just, just write it all off like that. It's just, that's too easy of an explanation. And science the scientific community has a hard time admitting they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, I'm somewhere in between. I mean, generally speaking, like I don't look down on other religions or anything or people who go to church. I think that people should believe in whatever helps them sleep at night. I think mm. people should do, should, I think people should buy into whatever religion makes them live a good life and doesn't don't hurt other people. I think even though I like, I don't have much respect for religions in general. 
like to me they're all just kind of meant to control society and people mm -hmm. and and I'd rather admit that there's things I don't know there's things that science and religion cannot explain and mm -hmm. that's where I am yeah I mean given your background I can see why you feel suspicious about like blind faith and all of that kind of stuff and I take I take that into consideration too so it's like, okay, I know that I am biased because of where I've been and what I've experienced. I try to keep that in mind and be like, okay, well, there could have been good parts and good, real, true things that, I, that happened in there. Mm -hmm. So I try not to just, you know, I'm trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I mean, it's, it's hard yeah. when you came from that place, you know? So it's a struggle for me. I understand. Yeah, sure. I've got my own biases and some of the shit I think and say might be, you know, completely outrageous or stupid. Okay. So what you think and how you feel and everyone's going to have an opinion around it, right? Because it's a very sensitive topic um, and this is yours and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to go back to sort of like the transitional period. And we talked a little bit about it in the beginning, um, but what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Um, like managing my own expectations. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, coming from where I came from, I had certain expectations how people should be or what I thought they should be like, uh, like in terms of communication and communication of their feelings, mm -hmm. uh, in particular feelings of anger, because those were like very, very suppressed. And when coming from where I came from, it was very looked down on. You can't express any feelings of anger or else that's, you know, you're mm -hmm. going to get hurt. So when I got out there and I saw that it was just so natural for kids to be like, fuck, and they'd be pissed. And then you see like, you know, kids yelling at their parents, like those type of families and stuff I was like oh my god this kid's gonna get <laughs> murdered in public and then mom just did your parents just keep walking like oh, I can't believe that and it was like holy <laughs> shit that kid I just I just saw this child get away with murder <laughs> <laughs> and like reconciling my own feelings with what I saw from other people's families and different situations it's like okay so apparently it's okay to be angry and apparently Anger is actually one of the more socially acceptable emotions to display because mm. you see that a lot more than, say, expressions of love or appreciate, like literally any other emotion. Anger is probably the most publicly common, you know? So I remember seeing that and I was like, damn, there's like a lot of angry people in the world. Yeah. And apparently the world's all right with that. Like, yeah. That was a big surprise to me. It was interesting to me because I it was the exact opposite how I grew up, you know. You can display any other sort of weird emotion you have except for anger. You're not allowed to be angry. So for me that was that was really big. That was a big uh thing to work around and like even to this day, it's like I'm not really comfortable with confrontation. Mm -hmm. I kinda I tend to bottle up all my own feelings. It's like other people are fine. I'm like, yeah. I mean you can exhibit whatever sorts of raw emotions you have. But me personally, it's kind of my default mode just to keep everything inside and deal with it on my own. Yeah. I've never, yeah, I've never seen you angry. Like if someone's yelling at you, it kind of rolls off of you and you're able to talk to them. 
like it doesn't affect you it's like interesting <laughs> yeah i'm just I'm very used to it. i don't like because i don't take it at face value if someone's yelling at you it's like in my head i'm immediately picking it apart like okay why is this person raising their voice and mm-hmm. in the back of my head i know it's most likely not the content of what i said it's probably to do with a lot of other things mm-hmm. so i just i don't take it personally and i just kind of diffuse it by staying calm and fighting raw emotions with cold hard logic until they're either too frustrated to continue or they settle the fuck down mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean i i have my own feelings too you know there's plenty of times where i want to freak out and yell and scream but it's just not really in my uh personality toolkit to do that (laughs) even if I might (laughs) want to sometimes like sure I've had my moments like everyone else where I lose control but it's like I can count the time number of times that's happened on like one hand Mm. so what were your sort of like coping mechanisms then what were your, your support systems and coping mechanisms look like um like what coping mechanisms I didn't <laughs> what support systems I meant? Oh. There's there were no support systems. Um, uh, like I was my own support system. I had to figure it out on my own. So you had none except for yourself. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, yeah, like, and I didn't really expect anything from anybody either. Um, like my older siblings, they were all dealing with the change in their own way. You know, they had their own set of struggles and they all had to figure it out the same way I did. And we were all in the same boat. So mm-hmm. it's like, to me, it's like, okay, well, I can't go to my siblings about this and definitely can't go to your parents about it. That leaves me. So I guess I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I never expected any help with it. I never, honestly, I probably, even if somebody did offer to help, I probably would have just dealt with it on my own. Cause that's what I do. Like there were older kids that I'd met outside the group and you know i looked up to them but they were they were like the bad group drug dealers and habitual felons and gang Mm. members people like that um Mm. Mm. i ended up kind of like looking up to them more than anybody else because they had like the freedom that i wanted you know Mm. and they're kind of just fuck everybody attitudes and stuff it's it's like they were embodying what I always wanted to say and what I always kept inside. So I think I kind of gravitated towards that Mm -hmm. and gave them more respect than I should have as a kid. Mm. Also, you know, like I said, I didn't have any role models and these people I'm around them all day and they're just kind of out there living their lives however they want. Seems like they had what I wanted. So, um, and plus I like, I, I felt like I had more in common with those types of people because they tend to come from like fucked up backgrounds and stuff. And I can definitely relate to that. Mm. So I guess I just kind of felt like I had more in common with them than all the other types of people that I had ran into. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like as far as coping mechanisms, (laughs) I guess just drugs. (laughs) I mean, it's a hell of a coping mechanism and I did them all and I tried them all. Um. Like I was introduced to pretty much everything when I was around like 13, 14 years old. Mm. I tried a lot of things and it wasn't like any particular drug that I really liked, except for like maybe weed. I smoked a lot of weed mm-hmm. and it was like highly illegal back then. It was like before it was even a discussion about being legalized or anything. Mm-hmm. So 
like yeah, I mean, I fell in love with pretty much anything who that could make me forget about who I was and where I came from and would get me out of my shell and make me feel less awkward. So like cocaine, I loved that. First time I ever tried it because it's like, oh, wow, I can have a whole deep, like really engaged conversation and not feel weird. <laughs> and, you know, I'm super like, I just, I loved who I was on it. It turned me into an extrovert. I was like, oh my God, that's like, mm-hmm. I'm suddenly the person I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, I'll never forget that. The first time I did it, I was 13 years old. And I just remember thinking, I was just like, wow, like I had no, I, cause I didn't know what to expect. Me and my friends, we had, uh, we had just watched Scarface, that movie. And one of mm-hmm. our friends went and like found some, found some really shitty Coke and we all did some, but it wasn't, you know, you never done that before. You don't have a tolerance. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it hit us pretty hard. And suddenly <laughs> we're all like yapping and jabbering and like just talking and rambling and laughing, having fun. And it was just like, oh, wow. Okay. It's like, okay, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe I just need drugs to be normal. <laughs> like that's, that's what I thought back then. So you became kind of reliant on drugs? I don't know about reliant, but I definitely fell in love with them and what realized like, I mean, like I didn't care about the be- what it does to you over the long term. I just, I like the immediate benefit. I liked mm. that I could be social on it and I could, I liked the feeling, obviously. I liked just, just everything about it. So mm. for me, it was like finding that thing that was always like missing, you know? Yeah. So you've had unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty unhealthy. What did your parents think about it? That You know, you were hanging out with the bad crowd, doing drugs and breaking into houses. How did they take that? Um, they didn't. They kicked me out immediately. So oh. by, yeah, by the time they found out all the crazy shit I was getting up to, mm-hmm. like I got very lucky like between the age of like 13 and 15, like I got into so many crazy situations, just completely outrageous that like looking back, like I should not be alive. (laughs) There were plenty of times where it could have gone so horribly and just, I got lucky, like very, very lucky. And like, even back then, I think I kind of ramped up like the risks that I was willing to take because I was like aware enough to know, like, I don't have a record. And from hanging out with all these fucked up people all the time, it's like, I know how the system works. Kind of, I was like, okay, well, I'm a minor and I've never been arrested before. So if I get in trouble, I can literally do anything I want. And the first time you get arrested, it's just a slap on the wrist. You know, it's your first offense and you're a minor. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wasn't going to do any like serious jail time unless I killed somebody or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I kind of just took that as like, oh, okay, well, I can do whatever the hell I want up until I get in trouble. And Mm. I did. I did a lot of shit, lots of crazy (laughs) shit. And um, yeah, the first time it got, the first time it caught up to me, um, I got arrested for uh, B&D, just breaking and entering. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, my parents, they, you know, that was the first time I'd ever gotten in trouble and they weren't having it. They kicked me right out. And, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up going to live with my brother. But yeah, but, but like before that I got into like way crazier, like that wasn't anywhere near the craziest shit that I got up to. That was the only time you got caught. Exactly. And I only got caught cause, um, like my friend that I was with at the time, he was like, 
one of those kids that's in and out of juvie. Mm-hmm. Like he had like a ton of prior charges. He was on probation. Like if he had gotten arrested, he would have went to jail for several years, even as a juvenile. And I knew that. So I kind of just took the fall for it. The cops rolled us up together. And I just, uh, I just, I, I took all the blame. I said, like, he, he literally just met me, even though he was right there with me. I was like, he was, I just met up with him right now. I was one over there and I, uh, like my knuckles were bleeding because I punched in the window to get into the place. Mm-hmm. And so they saw like, you know, my hands are dripping in blood and his are like, like he just kind of kept his mouth shut and played along with and just followed my lead. And sure enough, they let him go. They threw me in the car and booked me. Yeah. So you covered for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mm-hmm. took the fall for that one. So your mom kicked you out after that and you got to stay with your brother. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. You know, my parents, they don't they don't know how to deal with those types of things from their kids. And my mom reverted back to what's natural to her, which is don't deal with your problems, you ship them out. And so that's what she did. And since she wasn't part of the cult anymore, there wasn't a compound she could send me to. She was going to send me to a Christian uh, boarding school or some shit, some boys and girls school in Pennsylvania where... I wouldn't see a female until I was like 18 or some shit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she gave me an ultimatum. She said, I can go live with your older brother. He's offered to take you in. Or you can go to this school and across the country that obviously I knew I wasn't going to like it based on the description. So I took my chances with my brother. And I was like, you know what? If it sucks, I'll just run away. Mm. And you haven't really met your brother before, right? Until then? Yeah, no, I, I knew I had a brother, but I didn't had never had like a conversation with him. I knew his face didn't really, I'd seen him a couple of times, but never had a conversation mm-hmm. with him. Well, it's nice of him to offer to take you in. Yeah, easily the best thing anybody's, biggest favor anybody's ever done for me was that. Like he took a total chance on me and that was just based on his knowledge of what our parents are like and he just... I think it something struck a chord with him because he probably wished that he had somebody who would have done that for him when he was mm. my age. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll always be totally grateful to him for that because that yeah. changed everything about how my life turned out. Yeah. How how old were you when you li- went to live with your brother? Um, 15. I yeah. was, um, I was like a month away from being 16 years old. So yeah, yeah. 15, 16. And how was how was it like living with your brother? Uh, it was another culture shock ex- situation, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought I figured out the world. I thought I knew what people were like, and then you go from living in the city to living in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. <laughs> and yeah, it was like, okay, well now I've got to start from scratch and figure everything out again. Mm. So yeah, it was just another transfer to another awkward situation that you know I was better equipped to figure that out because you know. I'd been out of the cult for a couple of years and I knew how to deal with different personality types and um, it still took a lot of getting used to a lot of adjustment, but it wasn't anywhere near as bad as first getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like high school was easy. Did you go to high school? Yeah. So I told you I had enough, like I didn't have to go to high school when, when my parents kicked me out, I already had enough credits to graduate. Mm-hmm. Like all I had to do was just turn in all the, all the documentation and they'll send me my diploma in the mail 
that's all I had to do. I didn't have to do any work. And um, when I got to my brother's house, he's, um, he's a wrestling coach and a football coach at the local high school. Mm. And the high school's tiny, you know, graduating class, like less than 400 kids. Mm-hmm. So he's uh, him being um, a coach for, you know, multiple sports. It's like very slim pickings for athletes. And because I was somewhat athletic, he's like, oh, you should play, uh, you should wrestle or you should play football, one of the two. And I was like, all right, well, too small to play football. So I guess I'll wrestle. And that was like one of his, um, that was one of his requirements if I was going to move in with him. He's like, I need you to wrestle on my team. He's like, you don't, I know you have, you don't have to go to school, but um, I'll get you enrolled there. You wrestle just for wrestling season and then you drop out and you can get your diploma in the mail. I was like, shit. All right. Well, that sounds better than a uh, Christian camp in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so yeah, sure. I'll do that. So I ended up working for him and uh, going to school at the same time and training a lot over summer. So it was, and it was really hard, you know, it's probably like one of the most grueling, intensive training experiences I've ever had. Cause it's, I was working for him, which in work consisted of, you know, straight shovel work. We go out and dig holes in the dirt all day long. Mm-hmm. And then you get off work, you go to wrestling practice and that is grueling as hell. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to tournaments on the weekends. And it, it was just, I had so much physical activities that to keep me occupied that I just didn't have time or attention span for anything else. Mm. So in a way it was really good, you know, because it kept me, kept me super distracted off of everything else. And, um, it taught me to work hard, you know? Yeah. So that's a lot of good things came from that. Yeah. And you learn, and you were able to go to like a regular high school and like mingle with other kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was its own unique experience. So mm-hmm. I had never gone to high school, you know, I was very nervous to go. My mm-hmm. first day there was super awkward, mm-hmm. you know, ate, ate lunch in the bathroom, like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> and then I started making friends. And then I realized that because I'm at a small school, mm-hmm. I am actually by default, the most popular kid here because I'm new and nobody mm-hmm. knows. me. So as soon as I realized that it turned into like an awesome experience, I was like a local celebrity as soon as I realized it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So high school actually ended up being very fun. And my GPA slipped because, you know, when I moved up there, I had a 4.0. And then by the time I finished uh, wrestling season, because I just totally fucked off every class, or I thought I fucked off every class, but my idea of fucking something off is actually like above passing. So mm-hmm. um, I ended up graduating with like a 3.8, I think. 3.8 is like pretty good that's like not that's more than above passing <laughs> yeah and that like I said that's like not even trying but okay so you are a smart smart kid I don't know about smart because I did a lot of dumb shit I was just book smart like I think because I grew up around books and like reading a lot like that's pretty much it I, I'm used to teaching myself things you know mm-hmm. like straight from a textbook so when you have a teacher there to tell you and then not only that, the work just isn't that hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was walk in the park. <laughs> um, at any point in your time outside of the cult, did you ever seek therapy? Mm, yeah, about five years ago. I gave it a shot. Okay. Um, How was that like? I didn't like it. I hit, 
a really low point a few years ago. And, um, you know, I just thought I'd give it a try. My family recommended it and uh, my sister actually talked me into it. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, you know what? I got, I can afford it. Like, let's go, let's go spend a few grand on therapy. Why not say, at least I could say I did it. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried on several different types. The first, like, like I just, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. And I tried it, like going to see different ones and it was a different experience at each therapist that I saw. But mm-hmm. overall, I just, I can get past the concept of paying somebody to listen to your problems. Like that's what, <laughs> like, I just, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And the therapists, although they, like a lot of them have great feedback, great insights, it's just not something that I could really keep up. You know, it's really expensive. I was paying four or $500 an hour to see somebody. And I just felt like I could get the same thing from ranting by myself in a car while I drive, which I do sometimes. <laughs> and I don't know. I'm just, it didn't feel like I was getting my money's worth out of it. But I did try it. I stuck with it for a few months. But you didn't feel like it helped you or that you found someone that no. was a good fit? Nope. And I tried a couple. So it's mm. not like I just went to one and gave up. I, I tried a few. I mean, like if, if money was endless, sure, I'd keep trying it. But like four or $500 an hour, like that doesn't make much sense. Like I, I'm just not going to do that. How about like now, would you be open to therapy if you, you found something that was cheaper? Mm. My problem is I'm picky. Like all the therapists I went to see, I, I wouldn't go see somebody unless they had a PhD. And um, the issue I had was my insurance wouldn't cover the type of therapy that I wanted. Mm. It, like it would cover like uh, like basic therapy. But I went to one of those people and it was just like just some lady in her late 30s who just asked me cookie cutter questions. And I just like I couldn't respect her opinion or anything that she was trying to say or ask or lead me to believe like I just I wasn't I wasn't having it so I decided to shell out for therapy on my own after that and um you know I increased my budget and you know I was ran into a different set of problems yeah they were a little more intelligent and I respected that a little bit more but overall I just I don't know I just wasn't it wasn't for me. So it didn't matter about having PhD or not. It was just the quality of the therapist that you were seeing, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, having holding having that PhD was my selection criteria after going to like a regular therapist. Mm-hmm. But um, like overall, I don't think it really mattered much. Yeah. Like if I were to go back to therapy, I probably wouldn't screen it the same way. I would yeah. probably go and try to get to know the individual in the first section in the first session and just make my judgments based on my assessments of who they are as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's always hard to find the right therapist for yourself. And that, that is exhausting work. Do you think you'd be open to it again? Yeah, I could try it on again. Why not? So looking back now, what kind of support did you wish you had, but didn't have then? That's a tough one because support isn't something I usually ask or really even want. 
Mm-hmm. I like to do everything myself. I like to handle everything myself. I guess I'd have to rephrase that question for myself to answer it. I would say, what sort of opportunities do I wish I had? And I'd answer that by just maybe just general exposure to a wider wider variety of kids or demographics. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that area that we lived, I mean, it was kind of limited, you know. Um, if I had more access to different types of people, different, more social options to choose from, I might not have ended up in as much trouble as I did. Mm-hmm. Like having access to individuals with similar interests, like writing and reading and, you know, nerd shit like that. I might have, you know, I might have ended up totally different. True. Um, yeah. Might not have started doing drugs when I was 13 years old. Hmm. Uh, maybe I wouldn't have such a bleak outlook on the world. And maybe that would have affected my life path differently. Mm-hmm. Um, like public school, even going to public school, I think that would have been a great choice or maybe not. Who knows? Cause the public schools in that city were horrible. Like the kids that I hung out with used to brag about how often the, the local high school would get shot up. Like as if that's something to brag about, you know, that just shows you the type of ghetto ass people there. So yeah, maybe, you know, maybe public school wouldn't have been great for me, but maybe it would have given me, you know, more exposure and more options to choose from. So who knows? How about your time with your brother? Like he sounded, he sounds like someone that was supportive or someone you can lean on, or was it that, was it not that kind of dynamic? Yeah, he was probably up until then, he's the best role model I could have possibly ever asked for. If I had met him when I was younger, 100% would not have gotten into any of the shit that I did because he would have beat mm. my ass. <laughs> He's a very, very tough individual. That one. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I met him when I did and he turned my life around real quick. I can mm. never thank him enough for that. Um, and then what happened? Like, how long did you stay with him? I lived with him. So I moved in with him when I was 15. And I moved out of his house. Like when I moved in, I turned 16, like a month after moving in. Mm-hmm. Cause it was really close to my birthday. And, uh, I moved out of his house right after wrestling season was over. So I was there for like two semesters and then I moved out of his house. So I moved out and was on my own before I was 18. Um, I just, my motivation was I didn't want to be a burden to him. I knew he was going out of his way and he didn't have to take me in. And the second I realized what a great person he was, I was like, okay, you know what? The least I could do is get out of this guy's hair. He's got a family. He's got kids. He has more kids on the way. I'm sleeping on his couch. I got to, you know, I got to get out of the way. (laughs) Like I appreciate Mm -hmm. everything that he did, but I have to get out there and make it on my own. So that was a very driving factor for pretty much all my decisions. I was like, okay, I have to make it on my own. I can't depend on anybody else. And um, yeah, the first job I got was making minimum wage. And I worked out a deal with the guy that I was working for to where, because he had a bunch of properties and he let me rent one from him and work off the rent. So that allowed me to get out of my brother's house and go start saving up for my first car. And that's what I did. And I was very proud of that too, because I was like, yeah, you know, yeah. Not in the way I'm not a hassle. I'm not a 
encumbrance in the household. Yeah. So that felt good. So you you liked being independent, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah. It's a major pride point for me. What was it like working outside of the cult? It was great because I got to keep every penny I made. And I'll never forget my first paycheck. I felt so rich. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it was like six, seven hundred dollars. And yeah. I had, I thought I had so much goddamn money. <laughs> yeah. What did you use it on? Some groceries and saved a little bit. I was, I didn't, you know, I was living on my own and I didn't have, I knew I needed a car. I couldn't even go buy groceries on my own because I couldn't get to town because it was still in the middle of nowhere. But it felt good, you know, not relying on anybody, mm-hmm. eat a lot of really cheap bachelor food, ramen every other night. And mm-hmm. I didn't even have a stove. I had a camping gas stove because this, <laughs> this place I was renting was like, uh, it was like an old like horse barn that was, oh. you know, they put up partitions and drywall and ran electrical in there and put some carpet down, but like didn't have AC, no central heating or air conditioning didn't have a stove it had a fucking like I did I had a camping stove that I cook on and I lived like <laughs> that for until I was like 18 19 and moved mm-hmm. out but it was still better like you enjoyed it right it was still better to me than living and knowing that somebody else is you know taking care of things for me like I needed to feel in control about my own situation and be like okay I can survive on my own if everybody else fucks off I'll be fine like that was my thing I didn't want to depend on anybody because I just didn't like people have a way of letting you down and it's not like I expected my older brother to do that I knew that if I wanted to live with my older brother until I was fucking 30 like he would have been let me do that but I wasn't about to allow myself to be that type of burden you know so were you living on your own since you're 17 yeah how was forming friendships and romantic relationships like? Honestly, I didn't really try very hard. Like in high school, I was a player. I didn't really mm-hmm. date much. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationships I did have in high school didn't last long. It was like typical high school bullshit, you know, last a couple months max. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, by the time I graduated, like from 17 till like, 27 28 years old like all I did was work I was very career-minded I had goals financial goals I wanted to meet and I got there but I didn't prioritize dating or anything like that so Mm. I guess you could say it was just non-existent okay like I'd still go out on the weekends and hook up with randoms and bars or whatever but there wasn't anything meaningful there was it that you were avoiding it or you were just not interested or you just had a difficult time like opening up to other people? All the above. I just didn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't interested. I was just, I think I was just in big man horror mode, you know, this mm-hmm. is, that's how I lived for a long time and everything is frivolous and nothing is serious. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have, I didn't get into like my first real relationship until I was 20. That lasted for about a year. And then I didn't date anybody else until for like four or five years after that. Mm -hmm. 
I always thought like you were kind of like a hopeless romantic because if you're into books like you know it's like you kind of fantasize about relationships but so I just imagine you to be a hopeless romantic oh no I am <laughs> maybe I, oh you I are totally, I totally believe myself to be too and yeah. if you look at like some of the old things I wrote um in my archives like yeah definitely a hopeless romantic but <laughs> like yeah I mean I've always fantasized about the idea or the concept of being just totally infatuated with other people but it never really translated into reality mm -hmm. um it's just it didn't feel like it was in the cards for me yeah I didn't feel like it was something realistic it's more of just like you're more in love with the idea of it than and then when that person actually shows up you start finding reasons not to be in love or you know you start poking holes in your own theory of love and ruin it I know this is like a tricky question but did you feel like you knew what love was back then mm, I'm not sure I think I because you know you throw the word around and mm -hmm. it means different things to different people but yeah. no I don't think I had any idea and I think even to this day I'm still learning yeah so how did you talk about your cult life to others I didn't I just you didn't kept it to myself I didn't share that with anybody for a long time like a really long time and then even when I got to the point where I was like willing to try telling people about it again like there were several times where I just like tried I was like you know what let's try this on again and see what happens and then mm -hmm. it always ended up badly and I, or I didn't get the result or reaction that I wanted or expected so I just yeah. kind of went back into my shell I remember one time like um like the first relationship, like real relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I was living with this chick and we'd already been dating like for like nine months or something. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember how it came up, but we started talking about that. And I was like, you know, fuck it, let me tell her. And so I told her and then it was, I remember like, I felt like it was a big deal disclosing all this because it's something I've kept inside for like forever. And then mm -hmm. she was just like, so nonchalant about it, like didn't even matter. She's like, oh, that's weird. Anyways. This is what happened to my life. I'll just change the subject unless like lost over it. Like it wasn't a big deal. And I remember like being a little bit relieved and also a little annoyed. I was like, mm. I've just disclosed the biggest secret I've got in my life and don't even care. But at the same time, I was a little relieved like, oh, okay, at least it wasn't a negative reaction. So mixed feelings. Did you ever have like a negative reaction? Uh, yeah, I've had a few. I've had some super negative reactions, like insanely negative. Like from here on, it's like I try to make sure people know who I am already before I tell them that. That way, at least they're weighing in my character from their point of view and their own perceptions of who I am versus whatever the TV is telling them or whatever the documentary is telling them. Oh, uh, yeah, because Children of God, there's a bunch of documentaries out there. Yeah. And if you just let somebody watch that and don't give them any context about the individual, like you can't, they can't help but take what they see on the TV and be like, oh, well, that's what people who are in this must be like. And it's like, no, everybody's their own person. Yeah. And yeah, we all, everybody went through a uniquely fucked up situation in there, but it doesn't mean we all came out some totally damaged or fucked up people because mm -hmm. of it, you know? Do people sort of like look at you and think like, oh, you're dangerous, you're violent or unstable or like, oh, a red flag? Yeah, it's happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I fucked up and let people 
watch those documentaries that are out there without any context at all. I said, and yeah, they started treating me like that, but, and it was upsetting, but it's like, I think I'm just expecting too much from people, you know, mm-hmm. you just, you expect people to have more emotional intelligence than that. And you'd expect them to be able to take years of knowing you into consideration before you just label them like that. But mm-hmm. I mean, people jump to conclusions and you can't help it. If somebody's worried that I'm a loose cannon or that I'm going to snap and like start murdering people or some sh- crazy shit like that. Yeah. It's like, it's all you can do is just be level with them and try to make them recall that look, one, you, they know you as a person, like mm-hmm. up until you saw that documentary, would you ever think I'd do some wild shit like that? No. Okay. Well, th- that's who I am. You know, just take that for what it is. But I will say that you're definitely different from most people in a very unique way. And that's actually quite refreshing. Oh, thanks. It's the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> That's sarcasm. I learned how to be sarcastic. Took there you go. Year. Took me yeah. a few years, but I got, <laughs> you know, I got there. <laughs> so when you did share your trauma, like what were the common reactions? I'd get mixed reactions. I guess the most common reaction is pity, which mm. I fucking hate. Um, people can't help but feel bad for somebody who, after you watch those documentaries and you see what it was like and how horrible it was like how can you not feel sorry for somebody you know but yeah i mean honestly i hate that i mean all i've ever wanted was to be normal and treated normal mm-hmm. even though normal doesn't really have a definition i mean define normal you know <laughs> there yeah. it's hard but i really I, one thing i do know is that i don't like to be pitied i don't like to be looked at like oh you poor thing like no that's not for me second most common is they just think you're a fucking weirdo they just oh this person must be this way homeschooled he was in a cult got into a lot of trouble that's how you are like you know it's just so easy to label somebody like that Mm -hmm. I guess those are the most common reactions and out of everybody I've told those two are the most prevalent but there's been a handful of people that um, their first reaction is fear Mm -hmm. it's they see the type of people from the documentaries that that puts out and they immediately throw everything they know about you out the window and assume you to be some violent, crazed psycho. Mm. That's, uh, I mean, you can't even really blame them because there's people out there who really, they left the cult and that's who they turned into, you know? They were all over the news for a while and it's like some of the most publicized instances of people leaving that cult. Mm. So... I guess that's the one that I dislike the most because it's the biggest risk and you stand to lose the most when people feel that way. Yeah. Scared people do irrational things or at the very minimum, they put up walls that are really hard to bring down after. So I don't, and I don't blame, I don't blame them. I, I think it's the media's fault because if somebody knows nothing else about you, all they have to go off of is what the TV says, but it's really painful when somebody who definitely knows you and they've known you for years and they still react that way. It makes you feel like you've just been invisible your whole life. Like everything, like everything you've done to build a relationship means nothing when they throw it out the window like that. Mm -hmm. 
So that one's the most painful. Yeah. And what what's your ideal reaction then? I'd, I want to say acceptance, but that's asking a lot. Like acceptance without judgment. Yeah. But when you dump all that information on somebody for the first time, kind of really hard to not judge, make some judgments, you know? Yeah. I mean, the way you handled it was one in a million. And I can never thank you enough for that because that is just so rare that it's because I didn't get any of those reactions from you. Yours was a very unique experience. (laughs) I'm (laughs) glad. (laughs) Yeah. Very special. Thank you. Um, So, you know, you're turning 34 this year, right? Yep. Do you feel like you've processed and are healing from your past? Processed, yes. I process every day. (laughs) Yes. Um, Healing. Um, I think healing is its own process and it's ongoing. I don't think it there's ever a definitive end to it. I think mm-hmm. it's just one long journey and you'll know you're there when you're there. But um, honestly, I don't know what fully healed looks like or what it should yeah. feel like, but. I think nobody knows. I think, yeah, yeah, like you said, I think it's just ongoing. It just never ends. I can't say I'm in a way better place today than when I was as a teenager. And mm-hmm. that's progress. And I'm okay with that. And I know I've got more work to do. Yeah. What was your um, 20s like? That could be a whole book in itself, (laughs) Um, which I might write someday. Oh, Um, yeah? Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it was. If you think if you think the first half of my life was crazy, my 20s were way crazier. Like I've been in some really unique, wild situations. And I've lived, (laughs) I've experienced more in my life than many people will ever experience in their entire lives. Yeah. And and you writing and publishing a book will be kind of that full circle. Yeah, it would. Um, Have you, I'm just curious, like, have you ever tried to visit the old compounds again just to see them? Yeah, actually, I have oh, a couple yeah. of them. I visited some of them um, that I used to live through as. Um, what was it like? It was disappointingly boring. Yeah. It, I was see. <laughs> so yeah, I I went there because I was in some sort of mood, and I was um, I was like, you know what? Let's just walk around and see what happens. See what see what I feel. And I was expecting to have like you know emotional movie moments, but I didn't. It was just very emotionless and disappointing and I didn't get anything out of it except for maybe a couple flashbacks, but um, yeah, it was, it was overall, it was just disappointing. I was like, Oh, okay. That was a waste of time. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to get any closure. I'm not gonna, you know, have that moment or a moment or any sort of curious feelings. It was, it's just whatever. In your 20s, did you hit any low points? Um, yeah. I mean, I've been hitting low points my entire life. But yeah, I've gotten particularly low several times. Um, I tried to kill myself a couple times. Mm. First time I was, was on my 14th birthday. Mm. I just was really drunk. 
and on a few other drugs. I think I was doing like Coke and some pills and um, there was this girl I liked and uh, I saw her fucking this other dude that I fucking hated, like literally my worst enemy. And it was at my birthday party. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know, usually yeah. stuff like that doesn't really like get to me, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just being that fucked up. I just, I grabbed a knife and I wandered off into like, there's like a desert behind the house we were partying at. And I was just sitting on a rock and I was like trying to figure out the best way to slice myself open. I would make it the fastest and like just trying to work up the nerve and um it was random just came out of nowhere like I don't know what the fuck they were doing way out there because I was like in the middle of nowhere they're like oh my god and like this chick ran and like grabbed the knife out of my hand she's like what the fuck do you think you're doing and like (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that was the first time actually ended up being Mm -hmm. like very good friends with that girl for a long time after Mm -hmm. And we lost contact when I got kicked out of my folks' house. But, um, mm. yeah, there was that night and then a couple other times in between, but not, like, actual suicide attempts where I just kind of flirt with the idea, you know? And it's always, like, the idea yeah. of suicide has been in my head since I was a kid, like, very, very young. Mm. And the concept of it always made, mm. it was always, like, in my head very nonchalantly. Like, I didn't cons- mm-hmm. think of it as, like, a big deal. It's just another option you can take like, um, okay, well, you're waking up in a cult situation. Your life sucks. And it's like, okay, well, you don't have many options available to you, but you can just go jump off the building or step in front of a car next time you guys are out doing cult shit or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, it's just, it's always just an intrusive thought that's just there. And it was also, it was, yeah. it was enforced by the fact that, it happened a lot in the cult like before we left Mm. you'd hear about it all the time teenagers like leaving and they can't cope with the outside so they kill themselves like the suicide rate for teenagers that leave the cult was something insane like 30 40 percent of the Mm. kids that leave or something like that at one point so Mm. you hear about all this and you hear about kids that you knew when you were younger growing up and killing themselves and Mm. you're just like you get it, you know, you don't judge them for it. You're just like, oh, I mean, I guess they had it. They got to that point. And you kind of just wonder sometimes if you'll ever get there or if you'll ever work up the courage. I mean, anybody who's gone through what we did as kids, like they'd be lying if they told you they never thought about it. Every, all of us thought about it. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's something I've struggled with since I was very little. It's gotten yeah, better a lot. now that I'm older, but, but the last time I tried it, I was in my late 20s, like five, six years ago. And mm-hmm. um, it wasn't at a time that I really thought or over something that I really thought I would ever consider it about because at that time, I was actually at a high point in my life. I had... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had more money than I knew what to do with. I was completely independent. I had my own company, very successful. I had, mm-hmm. like, I could do anything I wanted. I was traveling the world, I was dating whoever I wanted to, hooking up with all kinds of people. It was just, mm-hmm. I felt empty. And I was depressed because here I am at the top of my game. I meet every 
I thought I had everything I had ever set out to achieve because I did. I had a goal for myself. I want to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30. I made 3 million by the time I was 27. And I didn't have any responsibilities. I don't have any kids. I can literally wake up and do any damn thing I want. And Mm -hmm. my problem with that was that I was still miserable. I didn't have, I didn't have a purpose is what it was. There was no, because I had everything I wanted, I didn't have any driving purpose. Like, what's the point? You know, all that's left to do is do drugs and mope around. And Mm -hmm. I was just really disappointed that that's what my life turned out to be. I said, okay, well, what now? You know, I got everything I want, still miserable. So what's the point? So... Mm -hmm. Um, ate a ton of pills, chased it with a few shots of whiskey and laid down in bed and just waited to die. And I, I fell asleep and I woke up two days later and, um, I was just really confused. I, it was disgusting, pissed myself and smelled like shit and nobody noticed. Wait, so you woke up two days later and no one knew like at all like no one called you no one came to check in sure plenty of people called me but nobody stopped by to check in or make sure i'm fine or anything like that i mean i was completely independent if i wasn't answering my phone it's like the people that did call it was all just work stuff i cleaned myself off and took some more drugs went back to work didn't think much about it Mm. i was embarrassed and i felt I was embarrassed mostly, like even though nobody saw it, I was just, yeah, I was embarrassed that I had a moment of weakness and, you know, I ate some more drugs, cheered the fuck up, went out a bit and partied and then just kind of got over it. But um, that was it, was, it was scary to me because it came out of nowhere and at the top mm. of what I thought was the mountain, everything I ever wanted. You get there and it's not what you think. I think that was really depressing. And it took me a long time. I had to lose all my money to figure out that it's it's not about the destination. It's about getting there. That's where my happy place is. My happy place is when I'm busy, when I'm focused, when I'm thriving, when I'm pushing towards something and working. That's that's where I'm the happiest. And it took me, I had to experience both sides of that to really realize that's that's who I am, you know? I think that all leads back to mm. the question you asked me in the beginning of, do I know who I am now? I think that mm. was the, probably the biggest insight I've ever had to who I truly am. Because now I know that everything I want isn't what's going to make me happy. It's the act of getting there. It's the struggle. It's the work that you put in. And the satisfaction you get of achieving something that doesn't come easy. Mm-hmm. And something or someone is keeping you alive, too. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I took so many goddamn pills. Like, I really should be dead. I was shitting blood for, like, days after. It was miserable. I was so dehydrated when I woke up. I just, like, could barely walk to the bathroom. I'm just happy that you're still alive. And I don't know what it was. Your body just 
kept you alive for two days. <laughs> oh, I threw up. Like I, I don't sleep on my back. Yeah. I sleep on my side and like yeah. I puked in my sleep. So it was like if I was sleeping on my back, definitely would have died. You just drown in your own vomit. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like just even the first time when you were uh when you try to kill yourself, it was like that girl just popped out of nowhere, right? So Yeah, like literally out of the bushes. <laughs> it's like, what were you doing in the bushes? Yeah, but, and it's um, funny because she's like, <laughs> that girl, she's really short, like five foot 11. Like, <laughs> Wait, 5'11 is not short. You mean four? You mean four? No, oh, not 5'11, yeah. 4'11. Four four <laughs> she's like, I remember that was like her little joke. I was like, she's like, I'm le legally a midget. And it was like, I just remember being so confused on like in the middle of nowhere this chick pops out but I was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but you were saved in some way and even if you may not feel this I'm just very glad that you're still yeah. here I feel like I'm living in reverse because most people go through their struggles and have an incident like that and then they find God but for me it's like okay I found God went through the incidents and then that happened and then I still don't believe in God and mm -hmm. it's just like i don't know it's a, it's a little the order of things is weird this is that yeah. that point is usually where people find god or church or purpose and whatever mm -hmm. and for me i just realized like i've got to create my own purpose if i want to mm -hmm. if i want to live a fulfilling life you know yeah and this is one of my favorite questions if you could go back to your younger self at any point um, in your past and give him advice which version of you would you talk to and what would you tell him I think I'd pick me in my 20s I tell him he's not as bulletproof as he thinks he is money's not always going to be that easy to make you're not mm -hmm. as smart as you think you are you're not as clever as you think you are you don't know what's in everybody's heads even though you think you can read people so well you can't people will still surprise you then i'd probably punch him in the face <laughs> i'd punch him because he's about to fuck off more money than most people know what to do with or make in their entire lives and i'm about to have nothing to show for it <laughs> <laughs> fucking idiot you're gonna have nothing to show for yes. that except for some good memories and some wild pictures and that's it <laughs> well maybe you had to go through that to be able to get to where you're going now you know yeah i guess okay um from your experience and perspective, in what ways do you think society can better support and understand the experiences of, of people like yourself who have survived cult environments? I think the best thing for people to do would be to judge the individual and form your own opinions instead of basing your assumptions on what the media tells you or what you see on TV. I mean, of course, take it into consideration, but overall, just lean on your own judgment. If it's somebody that you've known for a long time telling you and being vulnerable about this, like weigh what you know about that person over what the TV is telling you. you know? mm -hmm. All people can do is to manage their own assumptions and treat people like that with dignity instead of diving right into pity parties or putting up walls out of fear of who they might be based mm -hmm. on some news report you know like just think for yourself mm -hmm. just try to exhibit a little bit of empathy and emotional intelligence and don't 
buy into everything the TV tells you because people surprise you and people are unique and different. And if you give them a chance, they might surprise you. I feel like that's so important because you mentioned that there's such a high rate of suicide for teenagers that leave the cult. And and so support is so important when you get out. And if you don't get that, and if, and on top of that, people are making these negative assumptions of you, it's probably really, really hard. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. Um, Okay. So, What's next for you? What's next? I'm very career-minded. I decided, like, after going through what I went through in my 20s, mm-hmm. you know, getting a taste of having it all, losing it, I I know, I think I know myself a little bit more now. And mm-hmm. I try not to think too much about my past and focus more on the future and where I'm headed and how I'm going to get there. I'm not in such a rush anymore. I recognize that, you know, most of the satisfaction of having everything you want is gained in the struggle of getting it. So that being said, I don't I don't look at work and the daily routine anymore is like, oh, I hate this and I wish I could be doing something else. It's it's I appreciate it more. You know? Because it's mm-hmm. it's not that I find joy in struggling and working every day, but I know it's all for something and it's all for a bigger goal. And I know what's possible, what I can achieve because I've, I've done it. I've been there and I fucked it up. So now it's like, okay, I know who I can be. I know what my own potential is. And I refuse to believe I peaked Mm -hmm. in my twenties. So it's just, there's a lot ahead of me and I'm eager Mm -hmm. to get there. And I just, I'm excited about what my future holds. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. You mentioned you love to write. Are you still writing? Yeah, when I have the time and I'm in the mood, it's not something that I can just focus, like just force, like writing emails and work stuff. That's one thing. Yeah, I could do that in my sleep. But writing good literature, stuff that communicates an experience and emotions and feelings and gives you the full picture and communicates it in a way that makes you feel something that is difficult to do. Like, I can't just do that when I'm in a normal mood. I have to, I have to be emotional to do that. I have to either be depressed or angry or happy. And my emotions come through in the literature I write, depending on the mood I'm in. So mm-hmm. it's hard to, to, to get stuff on paper, especially regarding that, because it's, one, I have to be in my head, and usually it's not a good place for me to want to write. And because my life is so great now, this is kind of, you know, a rare happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did, I used to write a lot more when I was like, you know, in my teens. I had, because um, I, I, I always wanted to write an autobiography, but mm-hmm. um, I wanted it to be accurate. Like the accuracy of it was very important to me because. I wanted to express what it was like, like in the moment. So I would document stuff. I wanted to, I started writing like, um, like before, I'd say before I finished high school, like around 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And I had like 500 something pages by the time I was in my twenties. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to 
record it all and have it because it's like I knew the older I get, the farther away from yeah. the incidents that I was recording it would be and therefore it wouldn't be as accurate. So I had like raw documentation, just completely unedited, you know, misspellings and all. And um, one night I uh, I just, I got really paranoid and I was like, you know, there's so much crazy shit in this document on my computer that if anybody ever found this, it would just be the, like, there's just no putting that cat back in the bag. It's just too raw. It's too much of me on paper. So I deleted it <gasps> and immediately regretted that for a no, long, long time that's 500 pages of raw vulnerable material exactly and that's that's what I was worried about it's like what if my girlfriend at the time finds it what if anybody finds it like were you perhaps on drugs I might have been on some drugs when that happened <laughs> <laughs> yes damn those drugs is it is it that obvious <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, so last question for you, looking back at everything you've been through and the person you are today, what are you most proud of about yourself? That's probably the hardest question that you've asked me this whole time. And I'll tell you why, because <laughs> something positive. Yeah, about you're yourself, asking me sir. to toot my own <laughs> horn and it's just not something I do. I mean, mm, I want to leave that up to you to decide because you know me pretty well by now why don't you decide what I'm proud of no I want I want you to tell me what you are proud of about yourself I mean <laughs> my first instinct is to say the money I made in my career but um I fucked that up so it's not really a thing I'm proud of anymore you can still be proud of the fact that you were able to achieve that like make that much money at such a young age that's still in itself an achievement sure but i think anybody who's ever been there knows that holding on to it and retaining it and growing it is a hundred times more difficult than actually making it <laughs> making money is easy holding on to it and making it grow that's hard okay so um i have to say something nice about myself i guess i could say i'm proud of mm -hmm. the progress i've made coming to terms with my past and leveraging the trauma to make it work for me instead of just giving up completely on life and people, even though I've, you know, gotten close. But I mean, to sum it all up, I guess I'm doing better. And I guess I can be proud of the progress I have made. Yeah. Um, I mean, other than that, it's kind of hard for me to, to sit there and say nice things things about myself like that i think i'll just leave that up to your listeners to decide yeah well i'm very proud of you so and it has nothing to do with what you've achieved what you've lost what you've done it's just who you are today i'm very just very proud of mm. you thank you it means a lot i'm glad <laughs>